Welcome to this special COVID pandemic episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. On today's special edition episode, experts from St. Ambrose University and John Snow Incorporated discuss why it is important to continue to incorporate person-centered practices at the healthcare system level over the long term of the COVID pandemic. This episode's podcast host is Dr. John Bowser. John is a population health specialist, a faculty member of SAU's Masters of Population Health program, and a St. Ambrose alum. Before we get started, we want to remind everyone to please review current COVID reports from reliable sources such as CDC, World Health Organization, and your local and public health departments. This podcast was recorded through the phone to support the current recommendations. Welcome to the IPCC podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Person-Centered Care in collaboration with KALA-FM. We also appreciate the support of the Scott County Regional Authority Grant to make these educational podcasts possible. I'm Dr. John Bowser, adjunct professor in the Master of Public Health program at St. Ambrose University, and I'm your host for today's podcast. Our episode today is titled, Systems-Level Person-Centered Care in the Time of Coronavirus. When we read about the epidemic, the first thing that often jumps out are the large and growing numbers that we see reported. Thousands of people who have died, hundreds of thousands of people who have contracted the coronavirus and growing. But no matter how large the numbers are, each person who contracts the virus is an individual. He or she is entering into a new and likely frightening experience, which reinforces the need for person-centered care. With that in mind, my guest, Natalie Truesdell, and I are discussing how to maintain person-centered care during a pandemic through a systems-level process and all that entails. So, Natalie, thank you for joining us. And if you could share a little bit with the audience about yourself and your work. Hi, John. Thanks. Um, So, hello, everybody. My name is Natalie Truesdell, and I am talking to you from Portland, Maine. Um, I work for John Snow, Inc., which is a a public health research and consulting firm, and my career in public health has been focused on the concept of integrating mental health and substance use into primary care, which in its essence is um, trying to provide more person-centered care. Um, As many of you may know, um, traditionally healthcare has separated the fields of um, physical health, mental health, and substance use, um, all three of them, in fact, from each other. And so my work's been focused on bringing those three things together so you have a single experience of care. Um, currently, I'm the project director for a national center that's funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration to support uh, safety net providers across the country and in providing integrated behavioral health um, services. So um, it's a topic I've been thinking about for um I don't know, 13 or 14 years now, how do we um, provide patient-centered care um, and integrated services? Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate the time. Now, before we dive into the questions, uh, for the audience, I think it's important to briefly state what we mean by systems level. So now the term, it's, it's very broad, but in essence, it refers to the interconnected elements of the healthcare system that contribute to the care being provided. So this includes things such as policies, uh, broad expectations of practice, and economic factors. And it really consists of the litany of factors that are not necessarily a visible part of the patient's experience, but truly are a significant part of it nonetheless. So welcome to everybody, and thank you for being here today. 
So, you ready to jump into the questions, Natalie? Absolutely. All right. So, first up, what can and should be done at the systems level to provide a person-centered care approach during what is a rapidly changing global pandemic that is impacting more and more communities daily? That is a great question. I think um, when I saw this question, my my first reaction is um, we are all figuring out our day-to-day each day. Um, it is not a time to implement new systems, or I, don't, I doubt that we're able to implement new systems effectively in this emergency response um, mode we are all in. Um, both at a personal and professional level to, to shift gears and shift our daily lives. Um, that being said, I think it's important for people to recognize there are there is infrastructure for providing person-centered care at a systems level that already exists, and now is the time to remember what those mechanisms are and to utilize them um, because we're all making – um, as healthcare providers, administrators, educators um, – new decisions each day to adapt, um, we have to remember kind of what infrastructure there to help us make those systems, you know, effectively good decisions and and support one another through that um, when the answers are never black and white. Um, so some of those, um, as we think about patient-centered care that some people may not be aware of, is a lot of healthcare organizations actually have uh, uh, patient advisory um, board group, council, the term makes change between the organizations, but um, those are a mechanism that have been in existence for um, some organizations for some time are very established as a way to get feedback from patients um, and how they provide their services and think about policies um, and respond to incidents in a way that improves care going forward. Um, I think in this time of um, this pandemic, you know, there's there's going to be need for that kind of feedback. Um, some of that feedback may not happen as quickly as we would like, but um, we have to remember those are our resources to draw on um, to make good decisions. Now, you know, as, as everyone moves on and has involvement with different areas in their community, whether it's, you know, school, sometimes church, one of them is the healthcare system. And kind of a common thread in a lot of these is they do have some form of Council or advisory councils from the community, which you just referenced, is true in the healthcare setting. Something not a lot of people are probably aware of. So, could you expand a bit on what a patient advisory council is, but also how it might vary between different healthcare systems? Sure. So, um, you might you might see these um, in a various a variety of settings, as John's mentioned, um, hospitals. Um, may have them, um, which guide um, decisions at the hospital level. Uh, you may see this at some uh, behavioral health organizations, uh, which I think about often. Also, a lot of primary care organizations do, but not all organizations. Having this type of advisory group is not, you know, federally mandated or state mandated. Um, the organizations that have them have um, to die, decide to do so because they realize it's an important way to be responsive um, and um, look forward from a quality improvement perspective, but also from a business perspective. I mean, your patients are your customer. If you want to listen to your customers, this is a mechanism to do so. Um, the way they are run and composed really has um, a great deal of variation between organizations. But at a basic level, the purpose of all of them is 
a place to have a conversation um, for feedback from someone who's actually experienced um, care at that facility and can speak to not just um, what happened, but what it felt like, that experience, and hopefully guide the organization on how they can improve services so that patients um, have the care experience they're looking for, they feel welcome when they walk in those doors, um, their needs are attended to, and there's good and clear communication between staff, providers, and patients. Um, and just be a sounding board also for new policies, um, sometimes things very concrete, like a a new pamphlet or um, information guidance to patients. Um, some boards will be used to just have feedback and review on the content um, and those sort of things. So it, it really ranges from giving advice on policy, uh, marketing materials, um, and in some cases, responses to incidents that have occurred and, and guidance for, for future processes. So. Now, the the benefit of the advisory board, you know, it's clear it can help, you know, improve the quality of the care that is ultimately being received. Now, since virtually everybody has an interaction with the healthcare system, there's sort of this natural diffusion of responsibility that exists. So I guess my next question to you would be for those community members who are listening to this, why should people, or I should say, why should they take the time and the energy uh, to respond to or initiate contact with their health care providers. Yeah, so I think if you talk to any family member, any neighbor, any one of us will have a story um, as it relates to a healthcare experience, both positive and negative. Um, we all have stories to tell because um, healthcare is um, a service we all utilize. And um, we recognize when it's excellent, and then we also recognize when it's poor. Um, and I, you know, always believe it's, it's um, in a way, something like a, a civic responsibility to provide feedback to our healthcare providers when it, the the care is less than ideal, um, particularly for those of us that have the um, health to do so. Um, we know that those that are most ill um, are most vulnerable to, um, and don't have a voice. So. Uh, when I've seen opportunities for improvement, I, I speak up and um, I encourage my family, my friends to do so as well, because the only way any of us know how to improve is when we get that feedback. Um, the important thing is to give that feedback in a way that's positive and constructive. And whenever I provided feedback in that way, uh, with really the, the intent behind it to support someone to improve, I find it's very well received um, from others. So. Um, I, I think we each can can play a role, just providing that feedback. Um, send an email to your provider. Send an email to the organization where you receive care. Um, tell your story. Tell your experience. Um, and ask if you have an opportunity to share more, um, either in person or uh, in another venue. Um, just a, a quick personal story. As I send a, a letter to a provider um, detailing some concerns I had and I got an email back a year and a half later. Um, it took a long time for them to respond, but in some ways it was more meaningful. My my email sent her inbox for a year and a half, and she felt, felt compelled to respond when she had time to do so, which, um, which took a year and a half. So I think people really do take that feedback when it's provided with the right intent very seriously. Okay. Thank you, Dad. A year and a half, it's a long time, but it's good to at least get that feedback uh, eventually um, through their busy schedules. Now, the dialogue that you're talking about, it, it truly supports the capacity for a true 
person-centered approach to be at the forefront of how care is provided. But whenever we think in public health terms, in terms of reaching out to the community and trying to you know, get a lay of the land of what people are thinking and, and opinions, a big, a tall task in that is being truly representative of the community or the population that we're interested in. So I would venture to say that, that your experience and your contact with the healthcare system is probably above the norm in terms of the effort that you've put into it. So in all likelihood, those providing feedback probably represent a fraction of the population. So what steps can be taken to increase feedback and for whom does the responsibility lie uh, to ensure that this dialogue brings in the voices of the vulnerable and underrepresented groups? Yeah, so I, I think we all acknowledge we have different agency based on, you know, our knowledge and um, our education, et cetera, and, and those that have the least um, ability to speak are probably those that need to have their voices heard the loudest, um, whether it's because they don't speak English, um, they come from another cultural background, um, you know, or they're just simply too ill to, to have their voice heard. And so in those cases, I really think that healthcare administrators um, have a special responsibility to um, think about those populations and those patients and, and find ways to get their voice heard um, through feedback. And um, there's several ways to do this. I mean, um, one, you know, broadcast way to get feedback from all patients is, is through patient surveys. Um, and that's, you know, a common mechanism, but that has the hazard um, of only being filled out again by those that have the literacy level of the time, the education to do so. So, you know, I would encourage and I do encourage with providers I'm working with to think about other mechanisms that will get the voice of those um, other patient populations less likely to fill out a survey. So um, one way to do that is to um, host, host focus groups where you're bringing people together um, that have some similar characteristic, which, which also makes the feedback more comfortable for them. It can be pretty intimidating if you are one person um, in a room of 15 healthcare executives to share your story. It would be less intimidating if you are sitting in a group of 10 of your peers and you're comparing stories and, and sharing feedback in that way. So that's a really important mechanism to do that, to use a focus group to get feedback. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is there's, you know, a lot of advocacy organizations out there that represent special populations, whether it's those that are experiencing homelessness or those um, that are um, new to the United States and um, have a refugee status. Um, so there's, you know, a range of special populations who have special needs and there are existing organizations out there that represent those needs. So talking to um, the leadership of those organizations um, and hearing from them what the needs are is a great way to get that kind of feedback in a way that's um, respectful um, and perhaps less time intensive if you're not able to do a focus group in your specific organization. Those are all excellent points. And I mean, a lot of a lot of avenues out there to, to reach out so the healthcare community can get that voice of the broader population. So we have time for one more question. Um, and now, not just in this context, but in the context of the overall coronavirus epidemic, uh, saying that's being floated around in public health circles is that of never waste a crisis. Now, it can mean many things, 
But here, I think what it means is that we should learn what we can to improve practice going forward. So with that in mind, what do you hope we can learn and improve upon in thinking about person-centered care? So one thing to, you know, that's been the foundation of public health um, that I think this pandemic highlights more than anything else is the importance of a partnership. Um, public health professionals have always thought about how do we bring people together to problem solve? It's not just a single organization's responsibility. It's not a single community's responsibility. I think this pandemic um, highlights for all of us in so many ways how connected we are. So um, I think one thing we, we know in public health is when you bring diverse perspectives to a table, um, you know, in the case of the opioid crisis, we're talking about bringing together uh, law enforcement, healthcare, schools. In any public health situation, uh, we are so strengthened by, by partnership and, and bringing a dialogue across um, various people. And I think this current crisis is, is a perfect example of that and to encourage um, and support partnership. Um, I think we have to acknowledge that partnership takes time and resources, um, and sometimes the outcome of that is hard to measure, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. So I, I just hope we can continue to learn the value of partnership and invest in that because that's what's going to protect us, I think, going forward. Well, thank you. Again, great points. Um, and Thank you very much for joining the podcast and providing all your insight into the, into the topic. Thank you for having me. Now, before we go, uh, one final word. Currently, the most severe effects of the coronavirus pandemic are being felt in Italy, where the healthcare system is being overwhelmed. Coming out of this experience, experts in Italy are suggesting that a focus on community-centered care is warranted to address immediate medical needs and as an aspect of any planning for future pandemics. Community-centered care utilizes the knowledge and experience of public health professionals, social workers, and psychologists, among others, toward understanding and addressing, at a system's level, those factors that impact the health of the community. Doing so can limit the burden on the healthcare system at times such as this, which can allow for a true person-centered care approach for those in need of it. These are unprecedented times, and healthcare systems will need to enhance practices for the future and shift between person-centered care and community-centered care as the needs evolve. By doing so, we may best support solutions for any pandemic or healthcare community crisis that all of humanity are challenged with. Yet, we must also support person-centered care to continue to connect at the most human level. I am Dr. John Bowser, Adjunct Professor of Public Health at St. Ambrose University. Thank you for joining us, and be well. listening to this special COVID pandemic episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, brought to you by St. Ambrose University's Institute for Person-Centered Care and KALA-FM. On our next special COVID pandemic episode, providers will discuss ways to continue person-centered practices with those we care for during the COVID pandemic. You can learn more about the Institute for Person-Centered Care by connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter.